From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. Um, we are in the middle of Genesis chapter 41 uh, in verse 33. And when we left yesterday, we were talking about how Joseph heard Pharaoh's dream, and it was seven fat cows, then seven skinny cows, uh, and then seven huge grains of wheat, and then seven thin grains of wheat. Uh, and Pharaoh interpreted the dreams to, or uh, Joseph interpreted the dreams to Pharaoh, which was, you're going to have seven years of uh, great abundance. It's going to be awesome. But then you're going to have seven years of famine. Uh, God has already ordained this, and the decision has already been made by God, and God's going to do it soon. Um, and, I mean, we always talk about harvest and plenty and famine, but this seems pretty, uh, I don't know how Joseph would have been able to interpret this without the help of the Holy Spirit and God in his life. Um, and uh, Pharaoh is now trusting that Joseph knows what he's talking about. Um, and uh, so I think we'll pick up the story there. It, Maybe I'll read just the verse 32 prior to it uh, once, and then we'll get into it. So verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So God, this is it. This is my command that you're going to do it, or that I'm going to do it. And so um, we will go up to verse 33. Uh, this is Joseph speaking. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of the good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. So it's interesting. He doesn't say to take a seventh of the food because uh, you'd think a seventh would be about right because then at the end of, you know, you'd have a full year's worth of food. Uh, but Joseph recommends a fifth. And that is probably because there's going to be abundance. People are going to have to really learn to live with a little bit less so they're going to have to change their ways, but they'll have seven years to do that. Uh, and then a fifth, they'll lose some during loss, right? You store food. It doesn't always uh, stay. You're going to have some loss of food. So five, a fifth seems like a right amount, actually. It sounds, if I, were, if I knew what was happening, I'd say, yeah, this seems like a great idea to me. Uh, and you're going to collect all the good years, and the food should be held in reserve for the country. So not only is the food going to be held in reserve, but you've got to, um, the food is not only held in reserve, but you've got to create the storage houses to put the food. You've got to, I'm sure they have methods of storing the food, uh, depending upon what the food is. It's grain and cows. Um, and, the, you know, we know how to make jerky that'll last a long time. So, I mean, they probably had techniques and everything to, to keep food uh, preserved for a very, very long time. Um, but you've got to, not only do you have to, you know, eat the food that you're currently, uh, you know, for that year, but you've got to figure out a whole entire process, an industrial process to create a whole team of people that are taking the food that is going to be stored in the one-fifth um, and 
put that in a place that's safe so that it can be available in the in the uh, lean years. So this is actually quite a major undertaking. Um, was it, uh, oh, uh, was it Herbert Hoover um, was a guy like this, right? Um, if President Herbert Hoover uh, was one um, that he did a, uh, what did he do? I think it was a European, he figured out how to get food over to Europe, uh, maybe during World War One. I, I think it was, maybe a food drop, or I'm, I'm I'm probably missing all this, but I know it was Herbert Hoover um, that was able to, uh, Herbert Hoover, the engineer, by the way, civil engineer, mechanical engineer, I don't know, uh, who was able to uh, do this incredible process to, uh, that made him eventually become president because people, you know, trusted him because he was able, able to do these things. Um, so, so Joseph uh, is suggesting that they find a Herbert Hoover to, uh, to manage this whole entire process. That, I mean, what needs to be done is pretty much clear because Joseph has outlined it. But what you need is a good manager, somebody who's got the ability to do, to get things done, right? This is, this is the three in the Enneagram, right? People who, they know what needs to be done and they're just gonna be and they're gonna do it. Uh, and they're very, very happy. Their, their love language is getting things done. And so um, that's what Joseph is proposing. So let's see what happens. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. So uh, Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph might be the guy to do it. Now, this is unusual because you don't usually find all the gifts, like the person who has the dream, the person who interprets the dream, the person that comes up with the plan and the person who manages the plan, you don't normally find all that concentrated in one individual. Because Joseph didn't have the dream, but you don't normally find all that talent in one individual. Uh, but Joseph is not your normal individual. He is humble. He is honest. He has integrity. Um, he is wrongfully accused. Uh, many people believe that Joseph is a is a pre type of Jesus, right? That that if you look at Joseph's life and you look at the life of Jesus, you can see a lot of parallels. Uh, and the way that Joseph is um, treated and the way that Jesus is treated, um, you know, there's there's some parallels there. So some people see a parallel that Jesus is, uh, that Joseph is a, a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. Maybe because uh, be able to find one person with so much talent is very, very, uh, very, very challenging, you, but um, not impossible. Certainly are people like Herbert Hoover, right? That, but, um, you know, who's able to be a good manager and a good president. I mean, there are, every once in a while, God lifts up and raises up somebody with incredible talent. Uh, for the rest of us poor schmucks that only have talent in one area, we have to rely on other people who are talented in the other areas. Um, all right, so... Um, so, uh, yeah, 
Pharaoh says to Joseph, God made this all known to you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Um, did we read that? Yeah. Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God made this known to you, there is no one discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So basically what Pharaoh is saying is that uh, you're my number two. You are... You are uh, you're the prime minister. Uh, the queen of England is the queen, uh, and you are now the prime minister. And you are, to, you are to make sure that all this happens as the prime minister. You are Winston Churchill. Um, and so Joseph uh, graciously accepts this position, uh, and let's see how that goes for him. Can he handle it? Verse 41, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I thereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger, and he dressed him in his robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now, just if you have Pharaoh's signet ring, this gives you pretty much the power of Pharaoh, and he's dressed in Pharaoh's clothes. It's a visual a uh, signal that Pharaoh has bestowed all of this this authority on Joseph. And again, remember in, uh, in the life of Jesus, where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, all the authority in Egypt has been given to Joseph. The only authority that has not been given to Joseph is that of Pharaoh himself. The only one that can overrule Joseph is Pharaoh. All the other people, all the other administrators, all the other officials, uh, magicians, sorcerers, managers, middle-level managers, slaves, everybody, all everybody in Egypt must follow the new prime minister, Joseph. Um, verse 43, he had, uh, he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So not only does he get all the robe and the signet ring, but he also is in a chariot with Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name of zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Um, so this is wise of Pharaoh. So he dresses them in all the Pharaoh stuff. He puts them on the char chariot. They drive through town. Everybody sees that Joseph uh, has been made number two. But it doesn't stop there. He also gives him a new name. This is apparently an Egyptian name, Zaphnath Paneah. Uh, Egyptologists have looked at this name. They really can't find out what it means. I guess Paneah might... Nea, the end of it, may mean life. Um, the uh, early Jewish people said that Zaphonath Paneah meant the, the, the man who knows the mysteries of God, right? Or the one who knows the mysteries because he was able to perceive Pharaoh's dreams and turn it into reality. Um, just not a whole lot known about this name. Uh, particularly the, now that we have uh, the hieroglyphs uh, in Egypt, and we understand what they mean. They've gone back to some of the hieroglyphs, and they can see that Nia uh, is, a is a glyph that means uh, life. But other than that, we really have no idea what this means. Um, but he does give him a new name, 
And then he gives him uh, the daughter of a priest to be his wife. So, I mean, really what Pharaoh is doing is acclimating, not acclimating, assimilating Joseph. He may be Jewish from tradition and heritage uh, from when he came in the land of Canaan, but now that he's in Egypt, he has to be made an Egyptian. And what better way to be made an Egyptian and to get the trust of the people than to give him a wife who is the priest or give him a wife who is the daughter of one of the priests of Egypt. Uh, and Joseph doesn't seem to be uh, concerned about the fact that he's going to marry an Egyptian woman, which his father and grandfather and great-grandfather would have been horrified by, uh, except that now that he's in a position of power, his whole family's left him. Uh, he, is, uh, he is wise than to take on a wife in Egypt because that just gives him more authority and power. Um, I remember one of the books that I read years ago, oh man, long time ago when it came out, uh, Shogun, James Clavel, who wrote Shogun? Um, it's a big, thick book. I mean, it's about that thick and it's about this story of a guy who gets shipwrecked, I think, in uh, Japan uh, and he ends up becoming Japanese and learning the Japanese way uh, and the emperor of Japan is toying with him uh, and telling him that he's going to build a boat so that he can go back to England. And, uh, you know, he's only going to be in Japan temporarily. He's a captain of a ship. But over time, he takes on a Japanese wife and has Japanese children and learns the Japanese customs. And pretty soon, he becomes an effective person uh, for the emperor because he brings in to the kingdom of Japan technologies and new things of doing things like the way the British do, uh, who, you know, at that time were much more advanced in some areas than Japan were. But everybody was cautious and uh, pensive about having him, you know, do things in, in uh, Japan. And so, uh, oh, what was his name? Oh, uh, Anjin-san, Anjin-san was what they called him, an Anjin-san. I can't remember what the, but that's what he is in the book. And um, he learns how to how to live in Japan. It becomes quite successful, if I remember correctly, or maybe he dies. <laughs> I can't remember. It was a long time ago. It's a thick book. Uh, they made it into a miniseries, which, of course, mini, you know, the movies are never as good as the book. It, we have in the Hook household the, the law that says you can't see the movie until you've read the book because the book is always better than the movie. Rarely, 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 if ever, is the movie as good as the book. So you have to experience it firsthand by reading the book. That's just our rule. Um, and, uh, and Shogun was definitely better as a book, but it was a pretty good miniseries. Um, what was the miniseries? I think it was like a six-part miniseries or something like that. Um, anyway. Uh, really profound book, Re really interesting book. Uh, I enjoyed it wholeheartedly. Who was it that wrote Shogun? Anyway, um, that is, so reminds me that now Joseph is there. He's like Anjin-san, uh, and he's been taken over uh, all of Egypt, given all this power. And then he, he takes on this daughter, so he becomes very Egyptized uh, to make him successful. And we'll find out, if, does, he, does he remain successful? Let's find out. Let's keep reading. Verse 46, Joseph was only 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food growth in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. So God truly is giving him an amazing abundance of grain. And all Joseph has to do is go around and collect the grain. The people aren't too concerned about this because they've got plenty of grain. As a matter of fact, they got so much grain, he stops. You know, Joseph, as a, as a three, probably, you know, as an administrator, a high-level administrator, manager, you know, it's got, I'm going to make sure I know exactly how much grain so I can ship grain, but there's so much grain, all he has to do is just go around and store it, and that's what he does. Uh, he stores up a huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, and he said, It is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim, and he said, It is because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So um, he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, and it's interesting that if you look at a land of Canaan, a map of all the, the sons of Jacob, because when they end up going back into Canaan and taking over the land, uh, they divide it up by tribes of, of Jacob, tribes of Israel. Um, but you'll see on that map, you typically see Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, and you're like, Where, how are they the sons? They're the sons of Joseph. Uh, Joseph names his firstborn Manasseh because God made me forget all my troubles of my father's household. So it must be forgetting trouble. And then the second name is named Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Uh, probably, if I go back to the Jewish Targums, there's probably a lot about the names and, and how this all means historically. Uh, maybe I'll do that. But um, two sons, and, uh, and God, God appears to be blessing Joseph absolutely amazingly. Um, so we'll, we'll read to the end here. Um, verse 53. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. And when all of Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food, and then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So not only does Joseph store the grain, not only does he make Pharaoh look good, not only does he put this whole entire plan into place uh, by going from prisoner to, um, to Pharaoh's uh, prime minister, pr prisoner to prime minister. He also makes money for Pharaoh. Not that Pharaoh needs money. I mean, he's got all the money in the world, right? Um, 
well, not all the money in the world, but he's uh, pretty well respected. In the Egyptian dynasty, uh, you know, we love the mummies and all this from the Egyptian, but the Egyptians were pretty amazing people. Um, they had an incredible system of, uh, of, of agriculture. I mean, the Nile Delta is extremely fertile. Um, the Nile River is an incredible river for, for commerce. Uh, the, Egypt, Egypt is, is in an area that is well, um, well suited for somebody of intelligence to take it over as a land and create a dynasty. And the pharaohs did that. The pharaohs, just basically the kings, they created an incredible dynasty uh, in Egypt. And it's no surprise that, um, you know, one of the greatest libraries ever was in Egypt. I mean, there, there was, Egypt has always been an amazing place. Um, my daughter went to Egypt once. She was, why did she go? Would she go with the band? I think she went with the, she either went with the Concordia Wind Symphony or she went by herself. I can't remember. Maybe I'll have to ask her. But she went to Egypt, and she was not she was not impressed with Egypt. Today, it's they're mean people. That she's I mean they they were mean to her because she's a female, um, and uh, they they uh, they were very I don't know if mean is the right word very cautious about Americans going over to Egypt. My dad's been to Egypt. He's seen the pyramids and all that sort of thing. I don't know if I have a desire to go to Egypt. My place that I want to go, just so you all know, uh, I want to go to um, Constantinople. I want to go to Istanbul. That of all the places, I've been to a lot of Europe, but that's one place that just really, I'd like to go in the footsteps of Paul. I'd like to go to Constantinople. I'd like to go to uh, Istanbul. Um, I don't know if I want to go to Israel. It seems like a pretty dangerous place to go. Although apparently there's new peace in Israel. Israel, I have no idea. We'll have to see how life turns out. Uh, it's something I don't have to worry about right now. Um, but but one day before I die, I would like the, the two things I want to do is hike the Arizona Trail and go to Istanbul. That's those are the two things I want to do. Anyway, um, um, yeah. So, but not only that, but he makes money for Pharaoh. <laughs> Some people just have all the blessings from God. <laughs> he makes money. Oh, my goodness. And probably a lot of money because people are willing, probably when you're starving, you're willing to pay almost anything for food, right? Uh, and why was there famine? I mean, um, there's really only one reason why there's famine in the land. And uh, we probably don't see it as much because we live in an agrarian society. We know how to grow food. But the famine in the land definitely is because of drought. Um, the, the seven years of rain caused all this food to just grow in abundance. They were open to, able to open up new lands and grow new crops and all that sort of thing. And as you have more food and high-quality food, then um, you end up having more children. Uh, and as you have more, because the land can support more people, it can support more cows. And so you end up, I mean, you, I, you can really see how this almost all, you know, grows but because Joseph goes and takes a fifth of everything, it doesn't grow as much. Um, and Joseph puts it all together in storage land, in storage bins. But everybody becomes wealthy during the seven years. Um, and, you know, you become wealthy by a whole bunch of different years. So when you get to the seven years of famine, you have a little bit of wealth in each family to buy the grain from Pharaoh's. And he doesn't give the grain away, which I find fascinating. I don't know... Um, 
you know, in a land, we're, we're living in a land of, we're living in a time of famine right now with the pandemic. And um, I think it's curious that one of the solutions to the pandemic is just to give things away as opposed to um, making it easier for people to get what they need. But I don't know um, if it's wise to just give things away. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, I understand why the current administration is doing that and previous administrations have done things like this. Um, I mean, our whole welfare social state is on giving things away. But I just don't know if giving things away is a wise thing to do. Um, there's, a, there's a book that was written in the first century called the Didache, which is the teaching of the disciples. And it was, it was a, how the early church lived and how they you know, conducted themselves with the way of life, the way of death. And then there's some stuff on baptism, there's stuff on communion, there's stuff on you know, the small community. Uh, and one of the things that the early church did was that they gave away uh, food, possessions, and everything to people in need. But there's a precaution in there that says that you should let the alms sweat in your hands before you give it away. And what I believe that means is that you should not give alms to somebody unless you are absolutely convinced by God that this is going to be better for them than having them earn it on their own. Uh, having them, because there's so many different ways. Once a program becomes huge and part of a government system and people are no longer individuals that need to be loved and cared for individually, but they become numbers on a page, it is so easy for individuals then to game the system. And Game, allowing people to game the system harms them more than anything else. Uh, and of course, nobody can know if somebody's gaming the system unless you are really deeply invested in a person's life. Um, and so in the Didache, it says, do not just give stuff away. You have to really, it almost forces you as a community of believers, the church, to really be invested in people's lives to find out, um, is this truly a need or are they just gaming the system? And um, I, I mean, that is a warning from the early church, from the Didache, uh, because, and Rockefeller found this out, Rockefeller who became you know, the richest man in the 1900s, early 1900s, he couldn't give the money away. Um, I read a book, uh, on Rockefeller, and uh, he became so wealthy, every time he tried to give money away, uh, it destroyed the people he gave the money to. Uh, and it, the same thing is true with giving alms. If you, if, you, uh, if you give alms to people and they don't really need it, they can work, um, but they don't. Uh, they, they could make it on their own, but they don't because they just want to receive gifts. We see this in African countries all the time. There have been people, there have been missionaries that have gone over to African countries and they give so much of the abundance of wealth from the United States that these African countries don't have to do anything. Not all of them, but in some areas, it actually will destroy a tribe or a people or whatever. I mean, you have to be very, very careful. There was a book I read. Oh, yeah. One, I'll just finish with this story. There's a book I read called Toxic Charity. 
And it's about a couple that goes to a downtown and they buy a house and they live in downtown. And they, um, they want to bless the downtown by gifts from the church. And uh, so they, they, they're actually doing it right. I mean, instead of living in the suburb and driving into downtown and doing the things, they become part of downtown. They marry the priestess of On, right? They become acclimated and part of the downtown. And of course, they're still connected with the church in the suburb. And the church in the suburb wants to, uh, it's becoming Christmas time. This is one of the stories in the book. It's Christmas time. And the church in the suburb wants to shower downtown people with gifts because they know that they can't afford Christmas gifts. And so all the gifts are collected and everything. And it's this guy who puts it on and he goes to a house to give all these gifts. And when he walks into the house to give the gifts, the father of the house quietly goes upstairs and disappears. And he finds out later that the reason why the father disappeared was because he was embarrassed. Uh, he was shamed because he thought he was being a good father. He was there for his kids. He, were give, he was giving them clothing. He was giving food on the table. He was doing everything that he thought was necessary. The one thing he couldn't give his children or didn't even think was necessary to give his children was new expensive toys from the, super, you know, from the, from the store. And, um, and so you just, and so the whole point of the book is you can't just give charity because if you give it incorrectly, it becomes toxic. And Pharaoh seems to know this lesson. He doesn't just give the food away. He makes the people pay for it. And the, so the people still have their honor. The people still have their integrity, uh, but there's food available for them to purchase. I think that's so incredibly wise of Pharaoh. I don't know if that was a Pharaoh thing or a Joseph thing, but it was incredibly wise. Um, because uh, who was it that said the most important way that you can um, build self-confidence and self-worth in any individual is give them a job? Because the moment that you pay somebody for doing a job, they are... They get self-worth. They get uh, they get that feeling that they can be contributive to the world and to society. I mean, the be the best thing for a person to to feel like they're a contributing member of society is just give them a job. Doesn't matter what the job is, just give them a job. And as soon as they start to get money for the job that they're doing, that builds their self-esteem in ways that counseling can't do. Uh, it's the most powerful thing that we can do to people is just give them a job. So anyway, I think I'll, I'll and, then, and then they can take that job and they can go and get grain and live, right? Um, so um, I think we'll leave it there. And uh, thanks for joining me today. We have uh, no birthdays over the weekend, one birthday today. Uh, no, no birthdays today, none over the weekend, but we have one coming up on Monday. Uh, I believe there's another session over the weekend on the conference, so check that out. And uh, we will get together Monday, but it'll only be a short week next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I won't be here on Friday. So let's close in prayer. Dear God, thank you for um, this example of Joseph and how he was so connected to you that he was able to save Egypt. Uh, help us, Lord, to be so connected to you that we can be your hands and feet in the world. Uh, bless us through this pandemic. Um, until we meet again, keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.